there needs to be some good simple measures so that the public can figure out what's going on. That's currently missing. So in British Columbia's case, you could say they started with 330,000 regulatory requirements. They're now at roughly 166,000 regulatory requirements. And we can look at where those requirements are coming from. And that gives you a level of accountability that typically doesn't exist. And I think that that's what's missing is we need some broad, clear, simple measures that can be understood so that we know where the rules are coming from. We know who's reducing. We know who's adding. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese, and it's time for my favorite segment, What's on Tap? I'm here with co-host Kate Delanoy. Kate, how are you? Doing well. How's it going? It is going extremely well. I am particularly excited to celebrate Oktoberfest with you here. Yes. And as is appropriate, I have an Oktoberfest Meritson-style lager from Two Roads for us. So I'm going to go ahead and crack this open if you can let me know what's on tap at Mercatus the next few weeks. I can, though. I do. I mean, I have an Oktoberfest beer, and I feel like I should be doing the chicken dance. But I will I will power through. And um, there's a lot of really exciting stuff coming up at Mercatus in the in next few weeks. So Laura Jones is on the podcast today. And so I would encourage you, once you listen to this, go and check out her testimony from last week. She was in front of the House Oversight Subcommittee and talking about how the British Columbia reforms could be a model for us here in the U.S. So, you know, it's definitely I think you guys are going to have a great conversation. And the testimony last week was definitely worth a watch. The conversation is actually on a very similar topic. We're looking at Executive Order 13771, the infamous one-in-two-out rule uh, from the Trump administration on regulatory reform. So I think it's a great idea to follow up with the testimony. What else do we have coming up? Yeah, so we've got two awesome podcast guests um, on our podcast next week. The Macro Musings guest on Monday is going to be Jared Bernstein. And then that Wednesday, we'll have our conversations with Tyler Release. And that is going to be an episode with Paul Krugman. We actually started teasing those out. Um, there's some pictures that people can see online. So should be it's supposed to be a very good conversation from sources in the room. Sounds like we've got some great guests lined up for our other podcasts and the Mercatus podcast family as well. What about uh, research? Anything new coming out? So something that we have been getting requests for for months now is when is the latest edition of Fiscal Rankings coming out? And I am here to say it is coming out October 9th. So mark your calendars. Florida was number one last year. We'll see. I don't know who's on top this year, but definitely encourage everybody to check it out. I really thought you were jumping the gun there when you said Florida was number one last year. I thought you, there was a little hesitation before last year. It's like, oh, my gosh, we're getting inside scoop from from Kate Delanoy right here. I know. I, I have no such scoop, but I do know on the 9th, check out our website. We'll have all the information. And it's a really exciting one because we're actually looking at the last 10 years as well. So it's going to be kind of a retrospective on everything that they've been doing thus far, plus new information for 2018. Good stuff. Well. Hopefully you've had a chance to take a sip or two of our Oktoberfest beer today. What are your thoughts? I love it. Cincinnati is home to the biggest Oktoberfest festival outside of Germany. I did not know that. Yes. So I am a huge fan of all things Oktoberfest. Great. I love the flavor. I'm going to say four and a half out of five stars. Wow. Okay. So we have a clear winner uh, of everything I've managed to bring in so far. I'm also a fan. Not as much my style. Uh, I'm not usually on the, the maltier lager side, but this is really great. Little floral, which is kind of nice, actually. Keeps it a little crisp, a little more refreshing uh, with still a little bit of that Meritzen sweetness. So I'm going to be close. I'm going to give it a four out of five. 
All right. I think that's definitely the highest combined rating from the two of us. So I hope your listeners will stick around. We've got a great conversation that I think will also be quite the success on regulatory process reform coming up. Cheers. Cheers. A little over a year and a half ago, President Trump issued his seventh executive order titled Reducing Regulation and Controlling Regulatory Costs. Executive Order 13771 is better known in regulatory policy circles as the one in two out rule. The general idea is that if you have too many regulations, one way to fix the problem is by requiring that agencies eliminate two rules for each new one they implement. Longtime listeners will recall back in May when we discussed the issue briefly, but now that we've had a little more time to see the rule in action, we thought the time was right to revisit the issue to see what was working and where there might be room for improvement in the regulatory reform process. To do that, we're lucky enough to have Laura Jones back on the show. Laura is a visiting research fellow at Mercatus and the executive vice president and chief strategic officer for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Thanks for joining the show again, Laura. Thanks for having me again. We also have James Broll in studio. James is a research fellow here at Mercatus and an adjunct professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School. Much of James' work lately has been focused on quantifying and understanding state-level regulation. Thanks for taking the time to chat, James. Great to be here. So one of the reasons I wanted to get you guys in the studio today, as you probably have guessed, is that your co-authors on a recent paper we just put out looking kind of directly at this executive order and comparing it to regulatory reform efforts started by British Columbia in 2001. So we'll get to the British Columbia example, and I'm sure it'll come up a lot in the conversation. But I, I want us to start maybe with a with a look back at the Trump administration's efforts here. So maybe kind of in a broad sense, how do you both view the one-in, two-out rule here in the U.S.? Would you call it a success? in general? I think for me, the bottom line and the bottom line we came to in the paper is that it needs a phase two. And that's not to say that it hasn't done some good things. And certainly in spirit, the spirit of it is right. Uh, But I think it needs a a few tweaks um, and a phase two. What I would say is that I would say in some ways, what's, what's happening right now is historic. It's very ambitious. It's probably the most ambitious regulatory reform program since the early 1980s, since the Reagan administration. And the the impact of it is significant in terms of it. it There really seems to be a a slowdown in new regulatory activity in the issuance of new regulations. However, there doesn't seem to be yet a meaningful reduction in the overall level of regulation. And you would think that a policy like one in, two out kind of implies that more regulation is going to be taken away than is being added. And it doesn't quite seem like that's happening, at least not yet. So it slowed the growth. I mean, one of the interesting things is it has slowed the growth considerably and more than the past four presidents have been able to do in their first years of office. So that that in and of itself, James is right, is a significant accomplishment. But it's still growth. So it's slower growth, but it's still growth. And when we get to talking about the British Columbia reforms, one of the interesting things you see there is in the first year of their reforms, they actually were able to cut the number of regulatory requirements. Um, so they were able to not just st- stop the growth, but actually roll it back. You guys went exactly where I was going to go with my next question, which is, uh, I'm going to quote from a Brookings report briefly. The title is, How Was Trump's Deregulatory Order Worked in Practice? I'll just start, quote, Trump administration agencies issued very few new rules 
that imposed regulatory costs, and, quote, agencies also did relatively little deregulations, end quote. So in other words, that kind of seems to reflect what you guys found as well, right? That things are just sort of holding steady right now? Is, is that your understanding? Well, I do think there is some deregulatory activity happening. It's just that there's also a lot of new regulatory activity happening around it. And one of the reasons for this is that the scope of the executive order is, is somewhat narrow. Only significant regulatory actions, which are generally regulations with kind of a large economic impact require an offset. And so there's all the, all this smaller regulatory activity, which is still continuing and to some extent offsetting the deregulation that's happening. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the scope too. One of the things that I, I found, and I think this is in the Brookings report as well, is they, they list out kind of the, the limitations placed on agencies in, in, choosing which rules they can actually review. Um, I know significant rules was one of those contingencies. Do you all know kind of the other requirements or the the other things that are within the scope of this rule that agencies are actually allowed to look at? James is the expert in that. And I think this is one of the big surprises when we started this paper, at least for me, was just how complicated uh, 13771 was, that it took took me certainly a lot longer to understand it than I thought, which is kind of ironic because this is regulatory reform. (laughs) I think the regulatory reform, the red tape reduction might need a little red tape reduction, right? (laughs) The the regulatory reform rules need some work. So when the executive order was first issued, it sounded like it applied pretty broadly. When a new regulation is proposed, then it needs to be offset with two regulations of, of equal cost or more regulations. However, subsequent guidance issued by the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA as it's sometimes called, kind of narrowed the scope of the executive order considerably. Um, So only significant new regulatory actions require an offset. So these are regulations that have an annual impact of $100 million or more in a year or that raise novel legal issues or require some kind of interagency coordination. So non-significant regulations have been exempted. Significant regulations comprise about 8% of regulations a year. So already we're talking about 92% of regulations don't require offsets. Regulations issued by independent agencies don't require offsets. So those are agencies like most of the financial regulators, like the Federal Reserve, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Communications Commission. Regulations that are considered transfer regulations are generally exempt from the offset requirement. So these are regulations that implement government spending programs like Social Security, Medicare, uh, the school lunch program. And so given all of these exemptions, we we conclude in our paper that probably something closer to 1% of new regulations are actually going to require offsets of some kind. Oh, wow. So maybe this is where we can kind of start bridging into talking about the British Columbia model because you mentioned all those limitations. And I think there are two ways that you can think about those, right? The first is to say, look, you need some kind of safeguards to make sure agencies don't go off the rails and just remove everything from the book, right? So that's one perspective. The other perspective is you've basically tied agencies' hands and it's going to be really hard to, to, on the one hand, comply with this rule. And on the other hand, even if they do comply perfectly, does it really get it what you're trying to get at. I think, Laura, you mentioned, you know, maybe we need red tape reduction for the red tape reduction initiative. So kind of looking at those two perspectives, which do you think is maybe more accurate way to think about this? And then again, what did the British Columbia model look like? How did it get around maybe this trap? So 
there are already requirements in place, at least for the largest regulations, for cost-benefit analysis, for economic analysis of regulations. And the, the purpose of these requirements on regulators is that they don't just do regulate or deregulate kind of in a in a rushed or in manner without thinking carefully. And so those requirements are in place to ensure good governance and good decision making. And those are those are already in effect and nothing about the Trump regulatory reform takes those away. Uh, the ambition of the the Trump regulatory reform, I, I would say, is to somehow constrain regulatory activity, get control of the administrative state, and and reduce regulatory burdens to some extent. Um, and so that's somewhat of a different goal. But in doing that, you want to make sure that you're careful and you don't remove regulations that are achieving significant benefits for the public. And that's what a lot of these cost-benefit analysis requirements are for. Yeah, the cost-benefit analysis certainly has an important place, particularly for the largest rules. The challenge comes when you try and do a broad-based regulatory reform, which is really what citizens and small businesses, and that's what we want. We want fewer, clearer rules. And that can also, by the way, lead to really good outcomes, um, even health, safety, environment outcomes. In British Columbia, they maintained very high levels. In fact, some of the safety outcomes were better after the reforms than before the reforms. So with these fewer, simpler um, rules, but if your reform only applies to 8% or as as we suspect, maybe even as few as 1% of the rules, then you're going to miss the blizzard of small things that make up a substantial amount of the regulatory burden from the point of view of those who have to comply with the rules. And so what British Columbia did differently was they kept their red tape reforms simple. And I think that was very effective. But it's interesting. There are a lot of critics of doing that, certainly in, in Canada and talking to various governments about it. they very dismissive of a, a simpler approach to regulatory reform. They think it has to be complicated to be good. So you have to apply a cost-benefit analysis to every form for it to be meaningful. That makes no sense. And it's very expensive. Maybe we can kind of shift gears again to you all think you used the phrase phase two, right? So now maybe looking forward, now we've had a chance to kind of evaluate 13771, look at maybe some of its strengths, some of its weaknesses. What is the next step? And and maybe I want to even take a step back there. Who's... A, court is the ball in at this point? Is it something, do we need another executive order to kind of enter this phase two? Is it something agencies have to do? Does Congress have to act? Who's kind of the next person who needs to step up for whatever phase two looks like? That's something we talked about a lot, actually, when we were um, working on the papers. What what would that look like? What where Where's the roadmap? And I think we concluded that they're probably different couple of different roads to Rome um, on this. Certainly another executive order is a possible way to go about it and maybe one that requires um, better reporting of a simple count would be something that would be fairly straightforward to accomplish. But it's a good question. What's what's the roadmap? So one of the recommendations we make in the paper is that the, the president appoint some kind of leader or we call him a quarterback or her for regulatory reform across the entire government. Because currently, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs is kind of managing the reform, but they only review about 8% of regulations a year. So that's so much of the regulatory system is outside their purview. If you look back to the Clinton administration, the President Clinton had a reinventing government initiative, which was a regulatory reform initiative. 
he appointed Al Gore to run that. And it was actually pretty successful at, at reducing some regulatory burdens. So we think President Trump could do something similar, appoint someone to work with OIRO, work with the task forces that the president has put in the different regulatory agencies who are looking for red tape to cut and oversee the effort across the whole government. But the important thing to add to that is there needs to be some some good simple measures so that the public can figure out what's going on. And that's currently missing. So in British Columbia's case, you could say they started with 330,000 regulatory requirements. They're now at roughly 166,000 regulatory requirements. And we can look at where those requirements are coming from. And that gives you a level of accountability that um, typically doesn't exist. And I think that that's what's, what's missing is we need some broad, clear, simple measures that can be understood so that we know where the rules are coming from. We know who's reducing. We know who's adding. That would help a lot. So the the current measure the Trump administration is using is opportunity cost to society. That's how they're measuring regulatory burdens and what, and what they're eliminating. And that sounds great to an economist. Uh, it sounds great to academics and experts who, who really want to get a, a sense of the impact of, of what's been achieved. But it's also really it's hard to measure. It takes time. It takes analysts. It, it takes um, – we don't have up-to-date estimates of opportunity costs for the vast majority of regulations. And so if that's guiding the reform, uh, it's going to slow down things considerably, which is one of the reasons why we think for – in order to include – more of the regulatory system into the reform effort. They need a simple measure. This opportunity cost measure can make sense for the biggest regulations, for the regulations that have cost-benefit analysis. They have these cost estimates. But if we want to include all the rest of the regulatory system, we need a simpler measure. And we think something like the requirement measure they used in British Columbia or something like a restriction count, which is a measure that Mercatus has used in some of our research, uh, that that simpler measure could could be much more comprehensive. Mm -hmm. And that would be a great complement to the existing reforms in a phase two. Another idea that we pursue in the paper with respect to the reforms is fixing one of the, the asymmetries in what counts as an in and what counts as an out. And I think this has been um, somewhat controversial here in the States, is my understanding, um, that, you know, the what what 22 in for, for one out and what does that mean? And I think one of the things we discovered when we were really doing a deep dive on 13771 is that what counts as an in is different than what counts as an out. And that's at best, really confusing. I, I think that needs to be fixed. I got confused just listening to you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, sorry about that. But it <laughs> no, needs to be me. fixed. I mean, here you've got two people who are geeked out on regulatory reform, and we found 13771 confusing. Right. So um, that points to some things that need to be fixed. Right. So the, President Trump's executive order is actually pretty clear. It says every time an, an executive branch agency proposes a new regulation, they need to find to to eliminate. But the way that this was interpreted by OIRA was that only significant regulations need to be offset, but any regulation with a positive cost can be used as an offset in order to offset the significant regulation. And th this has kind of messed up the reporting um, on this, on how the reform is going. So the Trump administration last year issued a status report update, and they said that they'd issued uh, 22 deregulatory actions for each new regulatory action. 
But if if those aren't apples to apples comparisons, if you're counting different things, and so many people criticize them for this, and we think that that the reporting could be more accurate if they just made the offset requirements symmetric so that we count the same kinds of rules as ins and outs. And in British Columbia, they were issuing quarterly reports when they first started doing their reforms. And they had every single ministry listed, every agency, every government department, and how many rules they started with and where they were at now, what the percentage reduction was. And it was the same measure for ins and outs. It was really clear. It was one page. Anyone could understand it. And I think that that's, again, something that is typically missing from regulatory reform, but very important for transparency and accountability. James mentioned the, I think, the two approaches to kind of measure this. One was the British, the way British Columbia kind of set up their metrics. One was this restriction count that is the basis of a lot of Mercatus's regulatory work. I'm just wondering if you guys can kind of dive into each of those and help explain maybe either the strengths and weaknesses or just kind of describe what the metrics British Columbia used or what this restriction count metric would, would really look like in practice. Sure. Well, maybe I'll start with British Columbia and then um, turn it to James to talk about the Mercatus reg data. So British Columbia did a count of regulatory requirements, and they literally were looking at all the shells and the musts or the government prohibitions. Anytime you had to do anything for government, whether it was put your name on a piece of paper or have a safety committee meeting, that would count as one regulatory requirement. One of the things they did that was, again, different from previous reforms is they said, let's go as broad as we can with this. And so they didn't just look at regulatory requirements coming from regulations themselves. So, and to be clear, because it's probably a little confusing, each one regulation can have literally thousands of requirements associated with it. And so what they did in British Columbia is they said, let's get down to that granular level of every time you have to do something, we're going to count it. And we don't care whether that's in a regulation or whether that's in the legislation itself or whether that's in some guidance document associated with the regulations. We're going to go broad and we're going to count it all. Um, so that's what they did, and their baseline was 330,000 regulatory restrictions. They did it with the help of some interns. So this was a manual exercise. It took a couple months over the summer, so it didn't happen overnight, but it also wasn't a giant, long um, initiative to get a baseline count. They had to do some rebasing um, because there was some double counting. And so there were some things that you might expect in an initiative like that. But that's essentially what the count, what the count is. So for the reg data project at the Mercatus Center, we're using computer programs, uh, text analysis software to analyze state and federal regulatory codes. And and our main measure for, as part of this project is a re- what we call a regulatory restriction, which are instances of certain key terms in a regulatory code, shall, must, may not, prohibited, and required are the five terms we search for. An advantage of this approach is it, it can be done very quickly. You just run the computer program and you count up all the terms. We can also produce word counts. Now, a disadvantage is that you, you, there may be shalls that apply to government employees or maybe you're making or saying the definition of this term shall be X, Y, or Z. So you might pick up some things that aren't requirements. But the advantage is you don't need to have interns read through 186,000 pages of U.S. federal regulation. We already have estimates of restrictions for the U.S. federal code. There's about 1.08 million of these restrictive terms in the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations. So if the U.S. government wanted to adopt our restriction count measure, they could hit the ground running and start 
tomorrow. Um, on the other hand, if they want a more precise estimate of the exact number of binding requirements that exist in regulation, that's going to take time. It's And they'll need to have agencies count up their requirements and submit them to someone, OMB, OIRA maybe, to report them. However, that may actually be feasible. Uh, Virginia right now is creating an inventory system like this of their regulatory code, and they should be reporting their counts of requirements by agency in the very near future. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any reason why the federal government couldn't go that road. But if they want to save time, they could also adopt, just use computer programs or adopt Mercatus's measure. Interestingly, the province of Manitoba has also recently done a, a kind of a different count. So we've talked about the BC count and we've talked about reg data. But um, Manitoba looked at what British Columbia did and said, we want to do them one better. And so they went really deep and really broad. And they also changed some of the ways they were counting. So in British Columbia, if you have to put your name on a form, that counts as one, even if you have to submit that form four times a year. In Manitoba, that would count as four because they said, we need to look at frequency as well. So they also did it manually. And you know, with the help of some Excel spreadsheets, is my understanding, and uh, the guy who was responsible for it said, we basically pushed Excel to its limits. <laughs> and I think they're looking at now um, how, they can, uh, how they can use a different computer system for that. But, but the manual count, he said, was quite interesting because it got regulators also in touch again with um, many of the rules and many of the ones that they are identifying that they can eliminate. And regulators are a really important part of the solution. I want to circle back maybe quickly. Laura, you mentioned guidance documents were, were part of the British Columbia reform model. And this is an honest question. I'm not sure. So for our listeners, these guidance documents are put out by regulatory agencies. They're not rulemakings or regulations per se, but they kind of are supposed to give people an indication of how regulators view the rules that are kind of already on the books. Does 13771 include guidance documents in the same way that British Columbia did, or are they sort of outside the purview of this? So in theory, it could include them. A significant regulatory action under 13771 does include significant regulations and significant guidance documents. However, in practice, it doesn't really seem like they're being included. There are just so many guidance documents across federal agencies. They're not organized in any place in in a coherent or, or well-organized way. And it just seems like they're not really – they're just being kind of overlooked is my impression. Um, I, I haven't seen a, a guidance document be included in any of the OIRA reports uh, giving updates on the status of the reform. So in theory, they could be included, but in practice, it doesn't seem like they are. And that would only be for the significant rules. So you, any guidance documents associated with the blizzard of smaller things wouldn't be included. That said, I mean, what, one of the things they found in British Columbia was I think something like half of the requirements imposed by the British Columbia government came were in, were in guidance documents. Oh, wow. So we really don't have any sense at, at the fe U.S. federal level of how many of the requirements that the government imposes are in guidance documents. Probably a lot, but we don't know. So there, there really is a need to just as a first step – Get these guidance documents organized in a single place so that we can look at or analyze them in a more transparent way. But in our paper, we really recommend expanding the reform first, probably to the regulatory system, and the, and hopefully maybe expanding it more broadly to that beyond that to 
guidance documents and maybe even legislation might be possible as well. Yeah. I mean, the broader, the better. That directionally is where this should be going. Because again, if you're looking at making a difference on the ground to those who are tasked with complying with the rules, if you're complying with a rule, you really don't care that much whether it comes from regulation or a guidance document or uh, it's a legislated requirement. All you know is it's a rule that you must comply with. Um, So the closer you can get to that, the better. And James is right, though. This may be in steps. And one of the things that I think happens with regulatory reform sometimes is people tend to make the perfect the enemy of the good. So if we can't do the perfect Cadillac model with these complicated, expensive measures, then we're not going to do anything at all. And that's that's wrong. There's a lot you can do right now, as James said. A great example of that, too, is that there, there are estimates out there of the total cost of regulation. And they, they range pretty dramatically. And there's many critics out there of even bothering to try to estimate the total cost of regulation. Personally, I think it's a worthwhile effort and we need to do more research like this. But there's going to be a lot of uncertainty in any estimate. But because we don't have a good idea of the total cost of regulation, it's very difficult to know whether the impact that the, that the administration is having is meaningful. They claim they've eliminated something like $8 billion in costs in their first year. They're aiming to achieve more like $10 billion in cost reduction in their second year. But what, is that meaningful? I yeah, mean, is, that, is that 1%? Is that half a percent? Is that 2% of the, of the total? I there's mean, estimates really, of the cost of really regulation that are in the trillions. Oh, wow. And so that may be just a, a drop in the bucket, which is another reason why a simple measure could really give us a much better sense of what's being accomplished. If we had an estimate of the overall number of requirements in the regulatory system, and then the uh, you know if there were a million requirements, and then the administration says they've eliminated a hundred thousand, now all of a sudden we have a pretty good sense of what's been accomplished. But without that estimate of the total count, we, we it's really hard to know. Yeah, I mean, it takes a long time to talk about what's going on at the federal level in the U.S. I can give you the bottom line on British Columbia very quickly. They've cut their rules in half since 2001, virtually in half, 49.5% reduction. So they've cut their rules in half since 2001, and they've maintained high levels of environmental health and safety outcomes at the same time, period. So it sounds like the takeaway here is the executive order ambitious, historic even, I think you used the word, James, maybe time for a phase two. And we got some bonus material in there for our listeners about what phase three and four might look like <laughs> if we're lucky enough to get there. But really appreciate you guys coming on, sharing your findings in your paper and helping us walk through this surprisingly complicated but promising area for regulatory reform. I think that'll just about do it for today's episode. I, I always like to leave our listeners with a place they can go online to maybe follow this issue a little bit more closely to learn about the work that you all are doing. This is also a nice opportunity. If I've missed anything, you guys can steal the mic for a couple seconds as I turn to you and uh, get a last word in. I guess, Laura, we'll start with you. Is there any place you would direct folks who, who want to learn more about this issue? At CFIB Ideas is my Twitter handle, and I'm often tweeting about things to do with regulation. And of course, Mercatus is a, a great resource with tons of great information. Right. So our paper is called Effective Regulatory Reform, What the United States Can Learn from British Columbia. You can find that on the Mercatus website if you're interested in more 
detail on these topics. Laura and I also had an op-ed in The Hill recently, which was called Trump's Regulatory Reforms Need a Phase 2. So I would check that out, too. Great. Well, thank you both for joining. Uh, as always, listeners, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese or email me at crees at mercatus.gmu.edu with any questions, comments, or episode ideas. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.